New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Is there a safe harbor for humanity in the climate disruption crisis? Even though the transition to net zero carbon emissions is well underway, it may not be enough to ensure a healthy and habitable environment for future generations because it does not address the carbon dioxide that already lingers in our atmosphere and which if we do not do something about, will be there for millennia. The present level of CO2 is already way above healthy levels for life on the planet as we know it. The good news comes from our guest today, Peter Fikowski, who has extensively researched and come up with specific concrete steps we can take that can bring about a restoration of a kind of healthy climate humankind has flourished under for 10,000 years. He says that climate restoration is not only feasible, but once started, will pay for itself. This is not wishful thinking. It's on the ground proven processes that can and are being implemented as I speak. Today, we'll be discussing four adaptations of processes already used by Mother Nature in restoring the atmosphere to livable levels by 2050. Peter Fikowski is an MIT-educated physicist, an engineer, an entrepreneur, a philanthropist, and a social innovator. He has worked at NASA at the Fairchild Schlumberger Artificial Intelligence Lab in Palo Alto, California, and has taught at MIT. He holds 27 patents and was instrumental in launching the Foundation for Climate Restoration, whose purpose is to work with top scientists, innovators, policymakers, and others to create the understanding and policy needed to further climate restoration. He's the co-author with Carol Douglas of Climate Restoration, the only future that will sustain the human race. Join us for the next hour as we explore an optimistic and realistic look at how we can and must restore the health of our atmosphere to levels that support all life on this planet with our guest, 
Peter Fikowski. I'm speaking with Peter in his home by remote connection. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Peter, welcome. Thank you very much, Justine. It's a privilege to, to see you on Zoom in person. To see us together on Zoom. I know. I know. I, I'm so glad that you're able to join us. I know at one point in your life as a physicist and entrepreneur and, you know, the holding of 27 patents, and you began to turn your attention to climate restoration and fixing and restoring the climate. And I believe while you were researching that issue, you became a volunteer of a certain organization, a grassroots citizens lobby called Results, and it inspired you in a certain way. And I, I just think that that's important to share with us that idea of what occurred to you as you volunteered for this organization. Yeah, well, it's uh, the time is switched there. Actually, it was the volunteer work with results that opened the door for me. So I was I was young. Um, um, in 1987, I started uh, the results group here in San Jose with my wife just after we got married. It seemed like it would be a good half part-time pastime for us. Uh, as we <clears throat> started my business and raised our kids. And um, along the way, uh, the head of UNICEF asked us just a few years later, uh, being results, to uh, to work with him to finish the job of immunizing all the world's children. So back in the 70s, the global immunization rate was about 8%, was what basically uh, the U.S. and Europe. And uh, by the late 70s, it was clear that was insane, that we had to immunize all the world's kids. It was mammoth. It was mammoth. Yeah, right. And this was about the time, the, right about the same time that the, the Hunger Project started. So you can see how it all goes together. And by 85, the progress was okay, but the, the hard part was the second, the, the most difficult people. And But it was also the Reagan administration and all of the UNICEF advisors said, you just have to wait for a new administration because this Republican administration is not going to give money for other people that we have. You know. But we said, well, let's try. And we went to Congress and went to the media and we got the funding. And in 1990, the immunization rate had gone up from 8 to 85%, and it stayed there ever since. And I was, you know, I was just busy being a dad and an entrepreneur and on Saturday mornings organizing our group meetings and working with other groups, California groups. Uh, and then uh, didn't, I didn't notice it, really. It's like, okay, yeah, that happened. And then uh, we took on microfinance with Mohammed Yunus. And Yunus was on our, the board of results. And again, I was busy being a dad um, and just being on the weekly calls and organizing my group meetings. And uh, they they said, well, we're gonna we're gonna get half the world's poor living in less than a dollar a day involved in microfinance because that's what's gonna make it that's gonna make a difference on the planet. And we're going to do it in 10 years. 
And that was in uh, 97. Right. And by 2008, they did it. So um, I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, by that time, my kids were old enough and I went to the celebration and I thought, yeah, something's happening here. We're transforming the world without even efforting at it. Um, by 2010, I could see as a physicist that the progress we were making on reducing hunger and poverty was flattening out. That uh, this is about the time that Syria got very serious. And if you know the history, the conflict in Syria is all about climate, that their harvest, they had a severe drought, which I think continues. And uh, the people basically rose up and it turned into this ongoing conflict. And um, and as the years have gone by since then, more and more places have found that their harvests are drying up. And you know, in, in my book, I talk about this, that back when I was 20, you know, at 19 as an undergraduate, as a freshman at MIT, I was reading about global warming. And a lot of us read about global warming then and said, Thank God that's not my problem. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm 19. It's not my problem. And I said, not only that, I'm a physicist. And that's an engineering problem. Because you know, we were just finishing up the moonshot back then, the landing, the Apollo landings on the moon. And we know how to get carbon dioxide out of the air. That's how they, you know, they did, they could breathe in the spaceship and in submarines. And so it's an engineering problem. I'm a physicist, and I'm not good enough to deal with something that important. I'm going to stay out of the way and and do astrophysics. I was I was doing chemistry in or understanding chemistry in a galaxy fifty million light years away. <laughs> pretty but, remote, pretty right. remote, Peter. I, and any mistake I made was not going to hurt anyone. Think <laughs> no. about it, right? That, you know, in retrospect, I could see that was my thinking that I wanted to do something interesting that wouldn't hurt anyone if I screwed up. Well, fast forward 35 years and, you know, climate is going badly. And so uh, uh, one of my colleagues at Results started Citizens Climate Lobby. I had trained him in Results and he saw that we needed to do this on climate and uh, started the Citizens Climate Lobby. And so I went to him and... Uh, asked him, well, you know, what's the goal of our climate work? And he said, you know, I'm not sure. Now, obviously, we want a price on carbon, but that's not going to change the atmosphere. You know, the price on carbon will help. And um, so he said, but uh, Dr. Jim Hansen, who's sort of the grandfather of climate work, climate science, he's on our board. So talk to him. And so it was at, at their conference, so at the next luncheon, I had sat next to Jim Hansen and said, Dr. Hansen, what is our goal on the climate? And uh, Dr. Hansen was silent. I said, well, you know, uh, where could we get to? What, uh, what do we want to accomplish so we can set our sights and uh, sort of set the GPS? He said, I just don't know. <laughs> He said, I don't think anything's possible because Congress just won't do it. Uh, this was 2012. And I got really discouraged. I said, well, okay, by the end of the decade, end of the century, he said, well, we could get CO2 back to 350. It was just about 400 at that point. 
And uh, I said, well, the Dr. Hansen, 350 parts per million, although that's the name of the the, the you know, 350.org, that's still a death sentence for humanity. He says, yeah, that's true. But you know, if we get there, then we could actually see where to go from there. Oh. And uh, you know, yeah, having, if we're still alive to exactly, do it. <laughs> exactly. So you know, I went from this world of okay, let's immunize all the world's kids. Fine, that's done. Okay, let's get half the world living on it on less than a dollar a day. That's a half a billion people that we got involved in microfinance in ten years. Okay, that's done, um, and it's been again steady ever since. Um, we also worked on turning around the AIDS epidemic, getting the funding. Okay, good, we did that. And then now the head of climate says, well, our target is uh, maybe is slowing down the death of humanity. <laughs> I, I was devastated because yeah. you know I yeah. felt like that 18-year-old at MIT saying, what am I going to do? And what am I going to do? And with that, we're, we're going to get to what am I going to do? Because that that's the next uh, uh, place that, that you put your energy. I, I just want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Peter Fikowski and along with Carol Douglas. He is the author of Climate Restoration, The Only Future That Will Sustain the human race. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, peterfikowski.com. And I'm going to spell his name. His last name is F-I-E-K-O-W-S-K-Y, peterfikowski.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Peter Fikowski, a physicist and a climate restoration researcher uh, and a you know, very, very good researcher and, and helpful to help us know what's possible. The book uh, that he's written with Carol Douglas is Climate Restoration, The Only Future That Will Sustain the Human Race. So, Peter, we're we're right at you you hear from these experts well the goal is maybe we can reduce a little bit but we're not sure we're going to be alive to do that so exactly. so your idea because you had worked in this organization called results 
which people can look up. I think it's results.org. Yes. You saw the effectiveness of some of these major, major projects. They also worked with HIV and and AIDS. Uh, and it was just these major projects that what made them successful and how did you translate that to climate restoration? Yeah, the what I saw is what made them successful was having a specific measurable outcome, uh, time bound. And when I think about it, I I think think about the the Apollo mission. Uh, you and I, Justine, are old enough to remember 1961. Now, I was only six, but I remember hearing President Kennedy's speech, saying that we're going to land a man on the moon and bring him back safely by the end of the decade. And even as a six-year-old, I thought. That is deliciously crazy. I don't. That's not six-year-old language, but that's what I remember. And um, and I also thought, thank God, I'm too young to be involved because I'm just going to watch. <laughs> and and we did it. We did it in eight years. We had to develop. You know, here in 2022, we don't remember the technologies. We didn't have uh, solid-state computers. We didn't have integrated circuits. We didn't have batteries that could go that far. Life support. We didn't have Tang or Velcro. That's a joke. We didn't, but. (laughs) I mean, those were important at the time for the shot. (laughs) Exactly. And, uh, but so many technologies, we just said, we are going to develop those technologies because we can. Now, Fast forward to uh, today, um, the, the difference there is we had politicians, again, like, like John Fitzgerald Kennedy, and, um, and we had you know, uh, you know, generals who had been through World War II at the time and actually knew they could accomplish something. They could say, we're going to win this war and win the war. We're going to build this kind of a rocket, blah, 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 and, and build it. You know, this kind of a jet plane, developed jet planes there. And so they had they had this experience of giving their word to developing something and then succeeding, and sometimes they failing, sometimes failing. Now, you know, the newer generation of scientists don't have much of that experience. But they didn't have an experience of large projects being successful. Yes. Yeah. And so uh, I got thrown into it, uh, as I said I was asking, well, what can I do? Because I thought to myself, I have a little software business with three or three people, and I'm successful, but not on this global scale. But then I realized that I was blessed by my experience in results of having been involved in these projects that simply transformed the world without even knowing it. Right? If I had known it, I'm sure I wouldn't have done it. But I was just an innocent bystander. They call it a spear carrier in somebody else's opera. (laughs) I was a spear carrier in Sam Daly Harris's opera. Yeah. (laughs) And thank God. Yes. Yes, Sam Daly Harris founded results. Yes, and and as a guest on New Dimensions several times, we we love Sam and his work. Wonderful. And he's instrumental in getting you on right now. Uh, So we're talking because of Sam Daly Harris. Right. Yeah. Think of me as a spear carrier in Sam Daly Harris's (laughs) opera. (laughs) I love it. 
Yeah. And, um, but um, being a physicist and a, a, a fairly good one, you know, my astrophysics training was really valuable in not being daunted, right? When I said I was doing chemistry in a galaxy 50 million light years away, you know, if you take that seriously, you say, that's crazy. How do you do that? And calculation by calculation. And so I got good at that and comfortable with that. And um, I could see that after after I talked with Dr. Jim Hansen and he said, well, basically, yeah, we don't have a chance, uh, but we can try. Um, I said, well, you know, I'm the kind of, he's not an astrophysicist. Uh, he, you know, he's a planetary physicist, but that's different. Venus is much closer than 50 million light years. <laughs> and um, I had the, the ability to do the kinds of calculations and say, okay, if we're going to restore the climate, you know, CO2 will be get below 300. That's the highest level humans have ever survived. By, and we'll do that by 2050. And we have to remove, uh, you know, click, 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 click. Okay, 60 billion tons of CO2 per year. Okay. Um, to do that, we need several projects, like one or two or three. So this is becoming very concrete now, is yes. what you're saying. You're saying, okay, as a physicist, you're now calculating, saying, okay, here's the goal. Here's on the ground sort of uh, things that we need to consider. Yes. Yeah. Now, so then uh, just a, a little after that, um, I got a because I do stuff on Capitol Hill with results and Citizens Climate Lobby, I get a call from one of the congressional offices saying, we're, we're introducing a climate bill. And we want to put a little bit of language on climate restoration. What should we say? And I, my eyes get big and I call my friends who are all the top researchers on carbon dioxide removal. So this is David Keith. This is uh, Klaus Lackner. And you know, some of your uh, listeners will know them most well, but that's okay. But these are you know, the tip top people. And but because I, you know, I'm me and I'm also have Congress, they, we all get, get on a conference call. And I say, what methods do we have that will remove 50 billion that could scale up to 50 billion tons a year of CO2? And so in 45, it was just 45 minutes, we came up with eight different methods. Wow. And and there were seven seven people on the call, and every one of them said, you know what? I've been doing this for 20 years, 30 years, 35 years. No one ever asked me if I could save the planet for humanity. This is the first time. I didn't know we could do that. We could actually do it if, if society wanted to. It's like here, here we are, and we need the moonshot here. We need the moonshot. This is we're in this together. Uh, yes. The atmosphere is shared by all. For sure. So I want to ask you, the climate solution as it stands right now, where the emphasis is no more CO2 into emissions, into the climate, into the uh, atmosphere. And you're very, very clear that's a good thing to do. Yes. But it ain't enough. And yes. So share with us why it's not enough. Yes. Okay. Well, um, I, I have this thing. I, I talk about a safe harbor climate. 
So a safe harbor is in stormy seas, a ship captain will take the ship to the nearest safe harbor. And if a PhD mate says, oh, I think this island here is good, the captain's going to say, I love your harbor, it's great. Your, your island, that's great. We're going to the safe harbor we've been to before because we know that's safe. Mm. We don't want theory. So that level is the level that our planet had for 10,000 years while we developed agriculture and uh, technology and civilization because we, we, that's our safe harbor. Oh, well, it's about um, the emissions. Um, yes. Reducing okay, good. The emissions is not enough. Yeah. And so so uh, we we want that safe harbor. And so now when we stop emissions, uh, that safe harbor is 280 parts per million. The top of it is 300. No one, humans have never survived long term at above 300. Today we're at 420. And if we follow the, the UN goals, we're at 460, over 50% higher. And so even if we go to zero emissions, there's still very little chance that humanity will survive. Well, the point is and that you make in the book that really uh, I did not know, Peter, was that CO2 actually is contained and stays in the atmosphere for millennia. And if it's yes. at 420 parts per million right now, uh, and even if we quit, Putting any more in there, it's still there. So that's where those words, and I just want to say them very carefully because I want people to just spread this, these two words out everywhere. Climate restoration. And that's the title of your book because what that is, is pulling that CO2 out of the air and that's what's that's will help us we'll survive if yeah. we do that and right. do i have that correct you got it exactly right that yeah the co2 stays in the atmosphere where's it going to go it stays in the atmosphere for about you know a thousand two thousand years eventually it gets mixed into the ocean but um we have to pull it out. If, we'll if be we long gone. We'll, we'll be, be long, long gone. gone. So I, I know that, Peter, that you have come up with um, a four, in, in your book, you, you really kind of emphasize four methods that are just very, very exciting. And, and I know that you have a criteria when you look at these methods. I mean, being a scientist, yes. you know, it's so wonderful because you have these parameters that you work with or these methods that you work with and you have a criteria there there are three important ingredients that every method should have yeah and and please share with us those um three uh three criteria yeah so the three criteria that uh for any solution that's going to restore the climate the first one is it has to be scalable uh, it has to be able to get to the level close to 50 billion tons a year. Uh, the second one is it has to be permanent, that the CO2 has to be pulled out of the atmosphere for at least 100 years. Mm -hmm. And and that um, that excludes most forests, right? Because most forests only hold the carbon for a decade or two before the trees rot and die and rot. 
and then they start exuding carbon in the uh, atmosphere. That's right. They start re- yeah releasing this the carbon back out, and so, and the third one is really important, and this is the 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 twister the the key is it has to be viable that if you're not if uh it and you uh, say financeable 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 viable viable. so let let, we're going to talk about that in just one moment i'm reminding our listeners that i'm here with peter fikowski and he is the author with carol douglas of climate restoration the only future that will sustain the human race I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Peter Fikowski, and we're talking about climate restoration. So, Peter, we ended with it has to be viably financeable. I mean, that's a big one. I mean, that some of these things that people are coming up with cost trillion and trillions and trillions of dollars. Right. Oh, my God. So here we, you have four different methods that are very scalable, and that are permanent that pull carbon out for a hundred years. And the one that I'm I'm most excited about for some reason is um, something called synthetic limestone manufacturing. I would love for you to talk about this because I get excited about this because this is something that we can go to our local city councils and say, look, anything that we build we need to have this built into the building code. And, yes. you know, we can do this as citizens. So I'm excited about this one. So good. Uh, tell us about uh, yeah. synthetic limestone. Well, well it's, uh, just to, to frame the whole thing a little bit. So as an MIT physicist, when I came into it, and when I talked to the physicists back in 2014, mostly, in fact, almost exclusively, we were thinking about high-tech solutions. These direct air capture machines and uh, alkalinization, which you don't need to worry about what that is. But obviously, it's <laughs> <Thankfully>. high-tech. <laughs> anyway, and I expected that would be the solution. When we applied the three criteria, the the, uh, permanent, scalable, and financeable, the only ones that were left were ones that nature does, which is not shocking, right? Because nature has had a few billion years to do trial and error. You know, Edison (laughs) did his stuff in just a decade. Nature took a long time. Well, you know, what and so the three methods that the three methods uh, for getting carbon out. One is, as you said, limestone. I'll say more in a moment. The second one, because that's where ninety nine percent of the carbon on our planet got sequestered by nature is limestone. So we know that works. We only need a fraction of a hundredth of a percent of what nature has done. The second is what nature does before ice ages, which is ocean fertilization, ocean restoration. And the third is a variation on ocean restoration, which is seaweed. 
Uh, so it's one's micro microalgae, one's macroalgae. So microalgae is algae, and macroalgae is seaweed. They're all so exciting. When I read about them, I just I encourage people to pick up the book and really go into the detail of these because they are just so exciting. Uh, I'm I'm just stoked about it. Please, Peter. So let's talk about one of them. Okay. Okay. Well. Well. So, so uh, if if you're on video, which most of our <laughs> listeners aren't, so this is this is a jar of synthetic limestone from Blue Planet. And it's just, you know, it looks like a, a jar of chalk. And Blue Planet is a, a company that does this, one of the companies that do, that produces it. That's right. Yeah, Blue Planet is uh, developed the technology. Um, the, the, I'm, I know the founder quite well, and uh, he's been committed to the climate for decades and decades. And finally, about 10 years, eight, eight or 10 years ago, figured out that the way he could make the biggest climate impact is developing the synthetic limestone. And so I mentioned that 99% of all the carbon on our planet is on the bottom of the ocean and limestone. So it consists of skeletons and shells that have that fall over a half billion years or so, very slowly. Um, but it works. So, but if you, uh, when I imagine, uh, you know, sometimes I have oysters for dinner and so mm -hmm. it's a little tiny oyster, which makes this beautiful shell. That shell is, is limestone. Limestone is half CO2 by weight, or almost half. Oh. And, and so the, the, that little oyster has uh, is able to pull the CO2 out of the air. It, it comes out of the water. The wa CO2 in the water comes out of the air, just like in your soda stream, you know, if you if you have a soda maker. Um, it pumps the CO2 from the air into the water. So it the, takes the CO2 and it gets calcium from the water and makes the limestone. And Blue Planet uh, does the same process, takes the, creates limestone. And um, what's wonderful is we use 60 billion tons of limestone per year in our, in the, in our roads and buildings, in the concrete. And so th there's a market. It's a trillion dollar market. Uh, there's plenty of room for the synthetic limestone, and and, it's, and it's strong. It stands up. It it's not. It's a great building material, right? Oh, is it's better than a great building material because when you get rock out of a quarry, there's a lot of variability, right? There's there's no there's no quality control when nature makes rocks, but when they make the synthetic limestone in their processing plant. They have quality control. So if you need a certain hardness or a certain porosity, uh, ability to absorb water, they can give you exactly what you want every time. And, and and then you're you're not also supporting all those quarries that are just digging up mountains to to, you know, I mean, I can see it. There was one, I don't know if it's still a stand, but uh, going up to driving up to Willits from Santa Rosa, there's a big one. And you just see it digging into the mountainside. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, yeah, it, it's a um, it, it's sort of a no brainer. So I, I'm going to go backwards a little bit. So the my, my favorite method is the ocean restoration because um, that that's what nature does the fastest. And for us, it's by far the fastest and easiest. So you know you probably know that our planet has ice ages every hundred thousand years. 
And so in the last million years, we've uh, 10 times nature has pulled out the billion tons of CO2 that we need to pull out again. Um, so we know what works. And the way it works is um, you basically turn areas of blue ocean green. Now, blue is beautiful. I love blue beaches, but it's not green. Green is photosynthesis. So blue ocean is really, a. you describe that in the book as a desert. A ocean blue desert. ocean is the same as a desert. It, it Very little grows in it. It's kind of desertified ocean. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's an amazing concept. And so um, what nature does is um, the, 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 the missing piece that turns the, the ocean, because blue ocean has plenty of water and plenty of sun and has most of the nutrients except iron. And iron doesn't dissolve in water well, and so it falls to the bottom. That, that's why there's a shortage of iron in, in the ocean. And um, and so the, the... So the iron is heavier than water. Yeah, yeah, and it just doesn't dissolve well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, and, and, and so in, in the course of nature, uh, the, the iron gets distributed in the ocean by... Uh, by wind uh, dust storms. Mm -hmm. so, uh, the, the, a few years ago, there was a big dust storm from um, from the Sahara Desert over to the east coast of the U.S. You may remember reading about that. And you, if the Sahara Desert is pink, that pink is iron, and uh, I, you know, a little bit of iron oxide. And so those dust storms fertilized the the Atlantic, that that equatorial Atlantic. And that equatorial Atlantic is very green because it's got the nutrients it needs. And so um, by putting the minute amounts of iron into certain parts of the ocean at the right time, you can get turn that part of the ocean from blue to green and uh, sequester huge amounts of CO2. And the, at the same time, the algae that grows, the plants, are food for the fish. And so then the fish come, the, the way they do it is um, uh, they pick a uh, an eddy about 100 miles in diameter, and um, they distribute a, a, a number of tons of this very fine iron, basically, basically it's iron ore dust. Um, it's similar to what comes out of a volcano or a dust storm. So, so uh, it's dust. It's very, very fine particles. Very fine. Otherwise, it would sink too fast. Yeah. Okay. And um, and then um, within hours, the phytoplankton come back because they they find the iron within, within hours. hours. Yeah. This is so you can watch it actually happen right before your eyes. Yeah. And then um, within days, fish start appearing. Ah. But, um, the phytoplankton grow and then the plant plankton grow. They produce some sort of noise that tells the fish there's a lunch, but there's a lunch buffet. Come get it. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. Time yeah. for lunch. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then the, the whales come. <gasps> then the seabirds come. Uh-huh. And it's just amazing. They and then there are are there products that can be made from the algae that actually then get energized by all of this. 
Yeah, well, the algae feeds the fish, and then the fish uh, restore fisheries. When they tested this in Alaska in 2012, the following year, in 2013, the Alaskan pink salmon catch went up four and a half times. It actually was more they, than they ever had had before. It filled up all of the warehouses, and they had to stop the, 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 the salmon season early because this, the warehouses were full. Wow. Wow. But but now it's it's really in danger because um, I think that they've closed down so many warehouses and uh, everything. The whole industry is closed. The down. whole industry is hurting, hurting, hurting. Yeah. And so here is something very, very simple and scalable, as you say, financeable. I mean, it's... It, uh, <laughs> so uh, is this happening? Are, are people accepting this? What's yeah. going on with it? Yeah, so it's beginning to happen. Uh, and the book and this interview are critical because it doesn't cost much. It costs a few million dollars to get it started again. So they did it 10 years ago, had phenomenal results. But then the, um, uh, some of the environmental community got up in arms and they said, you can't go ahead reducing this much CO2 from the air because if you do that, we won't have a reason to attack the oil companies for selling us oil. Oh, all right. Wait, 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 wait. Okay. These are well-meaning activists. Yes. They well really, really mean well. And they, they've set their sights on fossil fuel companies. Right. And they want to just do them in. And they say, if we do this, if we turn our attention this way, then that turns our attention away from the idea of doing in these fossil fuel companies, which, right. uh, all right, we're going to talk about that in just one moment. I, I, <laughs> I'm I'm here with Peter Fikowski, and he, along with Carol Douglas, are the authors of Climate Restoration, the only future that will sustain the human race. And if you want to know more about his work, there are so many things on his website that you can you can find. Really, uh, go for it. And he spells his last name F-I-E-K-O-W-S-K-Y, Fikowski. So it's peterfikowski.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Peter Fikowski, and we're talking about climate restoration. And right now we're talking about, okay, there are well-meaning activists who object to- like, There were. Uh, there were. Okay, so-, so that, that, that chapter is over. Oh, oh, goody. Okay, please give us the good news about this. Yes. So, so 10 years ago, the UN insisted that we had to reduce emissions. And so then the, the environmentalists said, okay, good. Solutions that get CO2 out don't reduce emissions, so they must be false solutions. The logic is impeccable. And the problem was that the UN, the state, <laughs> they oversimplified the, the climate problem. That's changed. A year, year and a half ago, the UN came out and said, we have to pull CO2 back out of the air. And that, that flipped the page to the new chapter. I, I know of no, um, uh, no, no environmentalists who, who disagree with the UN saying that, that we have to re- pull CO2 out. So that chapter is over. But, we still, but now is the time for you, Justine, and me, and the book, and our listeners to talk about restoring the climate because the investors are still standing on the side because investors are conservative as they should be. You want investors to think think very carefully. Um, And they're saying, wait a minute, a couple of years ago, you said don't pull the CO2 out and now you are saying pull it out. So we need to tell them, yes, we're restoring a climate that humans have actually survived long. But isn't it true, Peter, just... A couple of billionaires could really kind yes. of finance because these projects are not costing trillions of dollars. They can take a couple of billion dollars a year to just really yes. keep going. And then they start paying for themselves with, the, like, as you say, the fisheries and other mm-hmm. things. And I'm just thinking, too, and I actually did this yesterday. Was it yesterday? I mean, I have a very, very small portfolio. I mean, Mm -hmm. really tiny, uh, because mostly it's been distributed to keep this work going. So thank you. But I I called and I said, look, what are you doing? What are what is in the portfolio that that is about climate restoration? And man, I was giving such a runaround, and I, you know, well, I don't know, I can't, I don't, I'm not part of that. I, I kept going and going and going, and I'm just saying, I want to invest. I want my investment in something as small as it is in climate restoration, and we can put pressure yeah. as little, little people like myself doing whatever we're doing, uh, saying, oh, is Blue Planet part of your portfolio, and can we invest in that, or or whatever else, you know? Well, Justine, the, the bad news is that um, none of these companies are public. Oh, and, okay. And All they right. probably won't go public. Okay. Because on the stock market, the the pull is for quarterly profit, not for climate restoration. So uh, probably these companies will stay private. So now So that's a good news that they're staying private. That's, that's a good right. news because they're they're fast on their feet and they don't have to, you know, worry about quarterlies. Exactly. Exactly. 
And so now they only accept investors who are committed to restoring the climate. Makes life much easier. Yeah. And so uh, my colleague Ilan in, in Tel Aviv is developing a fund, a private fund, where people can put money in and then they'll distribute to the private companies. And so then you you can own oh, part of that private this, fund. This would be very helpful. Yes. This would be very helpful. And and so it's a direct route in some way. It's, so many of us contribute five bucks or something a month to to whatever political organization, move on or something like that, or or the yeah. some others. Right. <laughs> and in doing that, we could then commit as as a collective. As a collective, we have a lot of power. And that's what you learned years ago when you worked with that organization called Results. You learned, hey, if you have a specific goal, we can do this collectively together and it changes everything. It goes beyond that tipping point. It just like really becomes manifest in the world. So I'm really excited about yeah. this. So uh, Ilan Mandel is, Mandel. is, is oh, my thank partner. You. And thank you. Uh, he has the Climate Restoration Network and we're it's growing quickly. So it's got a very small website now. And within a year, uh, thanks to you and really some of your neighbors there in, in that region of Northern California, uh, we've gotten pressure to get this fund together. And so uh, I'm committed that we do that. So you you can bug me about that if it, uh, okay okay I will I will do that and uh, I'll keep that up on our website in some way to keep people informed on that. So we have just a few minutes. I know that you have a, another project. I mean, you just have your hands in so many projects, and they're so all wonderful. I love them, and one of them is called I Am Humanity. And this is a, a new project that's really tooling up. So I'd love for you to say something about the importance of this idea and this this organization. Yeah, the, um, it, it started from uh, the realization that I was having trouble getting people interested in climate restoration because people want to know what can I do now for myself and maybe my children. And climate restoration really is for our grandchildren and future generations. And uh, in our society, they don't have a representation. And so uh, we created this this field we call I Am Humanity, um, or that you gave us the terminology today of we have one destiny. That um, Mm -hmm. what I love about it is I... The, the It relates to the mission I have up on, on my wall here, I've had for 20 years. And my mission is to leave a world that we're proud of for our children. And so it now, when I'm thinking about it, it frames my thinking from my children and grandchildren. What do they want? That What would I be proud to give them? And clearly that would go... You know, eliminating extreme hunger and extreme poverty. Well, obviously also it means a climate that humans can survive. Of course, it means a sustainable population. Um, but all none of those make any sense if you're only looking at what's in it for me. Right. And our current society has been designed around 
uh, Descartes saying, I think, therefore I am. So people identify with their current thoughts. And this is, well, your thoughts are good, but then more, perhaps for me and many of us, perhaps more important are our grandchildren and the seventh generation as indigenous First Nations say. So I am humanity is an extension of, um, we had our uh, first annual uh, Humanity Day yesterday, uh, which is a compliment to Earth Day. Right. So, you know, Earth Day celebrated the Earth and our, reminds us of our relationship that it, it our Earth keeps us alive. Now, since 1970, our population has more than doubled. And if you think about that, much mm. more than doubled, almost tripled. And um, and our you know, CO2 levels have gone from sur- survivable to totally not survivable. And mm-hmm. so this is the we've gone through the door where our planet is now not just a bunch of nations, but one humanity. Right. right? Because right. You know, as we're seeing with the conflict in Ukraine right now, um, yes. war is like over. It's I like know. you got to be doesn't crazy. Make sense. There was something in in this Humanity Day, which I, I join you in. There was a phrase that I wrote down, if humanity fails, there's nothing to take our place. So, uh, so yes. like, like if a nation fails, there are other nations to take the place. But humanity, as we are, as I said, it, dignity for all that, that it is, we're in this together. Yeah. It, it, no it's, one it's, is left out of the atmosphere. <laughs> I, I call it a bar mitzvah for humanity. Ah. So when I was 12, you know, I studied for my bar mitzvah, and I was studying Hebrew and certain a passage from the Torah. Um, but it, going into uh, my bar mitzvah at age 13, I'm becoming an adult. But I'm very clear as a 13-year-old, I have no idea what that means. Yeah. But I also know that I now need to learn. And so our, our bar mitzvah for humanity is we're becoming an adult where we we have to say where our planet is going. Because just like you don't want to have a 10-year-old running your household, um, it might go okay, but probably it won't. Um, right. uh, until now, there were fewer, few of us, few enough of us to uh, survive on the planet. But now with 8 billion, we need to plan our destiny the way we want it to be. And that's, that's the nature of I am humanity. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So people can look that up. Um, I am humanity.net. I am humanity.net. And there's a planetary citizens handbook which is wonderful. And I want to thank you so much, Peter. There's so much more we could cover, but we've run out of time. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you so much, Justine. Wonderful discussion. I I can't wait to see what you and your listeners uh, produce coming forward. Yay. Yay. It'll be good things. I've been speaking with Peter Fikowski. He spells his last name F-I-E-K-O-W-S-K-Y can go to his website, peterfikowski.com. He's the author of Climate Restoration, The Only Future That Will Sustain the Human Race. You can also get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening 
to new dimensions. This is program number 3,772. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.